Hello and welcome to That Blind Lads podcast and today my special guest is Mick Scarlett. Mick, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I hope you're well too. Thank you, I'm good. How was your... How was, how was the month of January in 2021, Trita? Um, That's it, to be honest, uh, <laughs> January, this, uh, has that, it, I've actually found this recent bit of the lockdown, you know, COVID disaster harder than any of the others. The first mm. one, I actually, uh, I was in a very fortunate position. I was, in, I was employed, <laughs> uh, but I'd come to the end of my contract and forgotten to take any holiday pay, any holiday time. So I was actually paid for a month to sit on the sofa, and so I did. Then I landed a really fantastic job on Radio 4 reviewing television. Oh, my God. It's a job I dreamed of as a child. So basically, I spent the next month watching previews of television shows and then going on Radio 4 to talk about them. So for the first lockdown, it was like, I am in, I am in heaven. You know, I, was, I, was, I was a pig in poo. I, was, I had it lovely. Um, then I, it, you could go out and do stuff. I was fine. But this time, this sort of recent one has been quite heavy going mm. uh, I think because I'm back working freelance and I'm doing a lot of online training and online training is probably the most tiring thing I think I've ever done yeah. uh, and I used to work in a dole office so uh, <laughs> so and that, was, that was tough um, uh, so yeah and, and and I think also, I think my poor wife, my wife is, is very into going out. She's very sociable. She loves people and things and art and stuff. And yeah. it's really getting on her. It's, it's, it, and, it, and I feel really sorry for her because her 2020, just before lockdown started, you know, last year, our year was, a calendar was just full. She had booked something. It was like, I was saying to her, look, you've got to leave me a couple of days to recover. <laughs> and then as lockdown started, I just went through going, no, 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 crossing them off the calendar. Yeah. See her deflate. And, you know, now, it, you know, people are going, oh, it'll probably be March, might be April. And it's like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and so that- all those people out there that have been locked in, you know, that have been shielding for the whole year. I, I, I take my hat off to you. I don't know how you've done it. I don't. Yeah, I think it's a I thing. Do as well. Because it went back in March. We no one, no one think thought that we'd be in the same position a year later. No, no. It's I just. Don't think. I think there was there was some of us that kind of. I mean, cause I'm I'm lucky. When I was a youth, I studied to be a medical social worker. So I, um, I went to university and kind of did a nursing course. And so I, I kind of know a lot about like things like virology and stuff. And so I kind of was like, this isn't something that just fix. You can't just fix it. But no. I didn't think that we, you know, that that people that might have been able to make a better hand of it, shall we say, would make such a pig's ear of it. So I didn't think it would be going on this yeah. long. No names. Cool, but you know, not saying anyone. But <laughs> it's really, you know, kind of there are other countries that probably dealt with it better and probably are in a better position. Um, and you know the idea that we're all praying for this vaccine is okay but you know people don't really understand what a vaccine is so they think it's going to make them you know so I'm impervious that's like a shield against the virus superpower not what a vaccine is darling so yeah uh, (laughs) but yeah you know let's hope that uh, you know kind of by summer things are a bit more back to normal and we can enjoy maybe Whatever the weather throws us, because I don't think any of us care. I think if it's an absolute monsoon, all <laughs> double will be like, we don't care, we're outside. Someone <laughs> <laughs> in out there, their shorts and the, the lilos and the that's it, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just your local river, just anything. <laughs> Thunder, lightning. 
So, um, like we do with all my guests, I pretty much start to go back to the beginning um, yeah. and learn about you as uh, a young Mick, I suppose you could say, and where it all started for you and how your disability also comes into that. And, and yeah, so um, the baby, stage is yours. Well, I uh, I have a strange and weird and twisted, long-winded story, <laughs> luckily for radio, unless you want it to be a short show. Um, I was born long time ago in 1965 when everything was black and white uh, <laughs> and uh, all my photographs of me are black and white it's so funny uh and i was bought a very soon after i was born it was discovered that i had cancer uh, i had a thing called an adrenal neuroblastoma and at that time it was one of those tumors that was very i mean almost impossible to cure um and I was very far gone as well. I was stage four. It was it was quite bad because basically it had been growing in in my mum inside the womb for quite a while anyway. So when it was discovered, it had left my body and was starting to grow outside of me. Fortunately, this meant it was caught early enough to be taken to hospital before it absolutely killed me. And even more fortunately, the doctor that saw me had just read in The Lancet that there's a new drug trial by Pfizer, good old Pfizer, uh, looking to trial on British kids with neuralgic cancers. So things like uh, a neuroblastoma is a uh, cancer of the neuron, so of the nerve. So and there's lots of different types, but this was uh, an adrenal neuroblastoma. So basically in my adrenal gland. And I was just so lucky. I, uh, I was one of six. We went on this drug trial for a thing called vincristine sulfate. And a week earlier, and I'd have been dead. A week later, he might have forgotten. So it was just the right wow. week. And yeah. I was on it, and I had surgery. I was irradiated as well. And uh, I, I do a lot of work around sort of cancer research now. I'm older and lucky to have survived. And the, one of the researchers I know was talk, I was talking to him about how I was irradiated. And I said, you know, basically, it's a baby. They just nuked me like the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and there was no targeted radiation back then. They just sort of stuck me under the source and went. <laughs> and um, he was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you're so lucky you're still here because of that. But <laughs> basically, the surgery, the radiotherapy and the chemo uh, all worked. And so mm. I survived. Um, mm. I was my parents were told I probably wouldn't survive past five. Uh, so they spoilt me like you would not believe and I was given a present every week for not dying my brother was born two years after me and every birth on his birthday I got a present on his on my birthday he got a present uh it, yeah it was a very strange kind of <laughs> kind of childhood that leads you to be an unbearable child because I didn't <laughs> die so then all of a sudden it's like oh he's not going to go we've now made this monster so <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I uh but it was it, I was left I was left disabled basically what happened was I was I was left um paralyzed my right leg was paralyzed so mm -hmm. I wore what was then called a caliper but now I think people call a leg brace uh and uh, it was a lump of metal it's two strips of steel that clipped into a boot <laughs> it was custom made I've still got my first boot here and it's tiny and uh -huh. red because I had a fed thing for red hence why the name and <laughs> um so I I, my parents fought to get me to go to a mainstream school and very luckily um, 
I went to go, I was being sent to school in 1970, which is the year that the law changed to say that if a school could, a school should take disabled children. Before that time, you went, everyone went to special school. So one year mm. earlier, I would have gone to special school. But um, and my parents struggled to find a school that would have me, but they found one at the other end of my hometown of Luton. So my parents upsticked, moved to another house so I could go to school. I went to school and kind of ended up being <laughs> the only disabled kid in the village because like at school, I was the only disabled kid there. Uh, mm. Same at junior school, same when I went up to high school. Um, and so that has a very strange impact on you, I think, because you kind of you get all that stuff about, oh, yeah, but, you know, you're not disabled. You're you're overcoming yourself, all that stuff. Mm aren't you amazing you're so brilliant you're so inspirational kind of thing you get bread pumped into you as a disabled kid that doesn't seem to be that he's doing better than possibly people expected them to do um and that's always because people have very low expectations of us so it's quite good um and then when i was 15 um come it came time for my exams and on the morning of my german o level i woke up and said to my mum, i don't feel very well i'm in loads of pain and my legs feel weird and she went, you're going to school, you're going to do your exam, because she thought I was trying to get out of going to school. Mm. I actually, instead of spending the night before my German O-level studying, I went to go and see Gary Newman play his farewell concert at Wembley <laughs> Arena, which is one of the highlights of my life. But anyway, um, and so I went to school <clears> and I collapsed in a heap at the feet of my geography teacher. And I can still, if I close my eyes, look up and see him going, are you all right, boy? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and so I was rushed to hospital and it transpired that <clears throat> the chemo and the radiotherapy combined have a side effect that no one knew about because obviously it was new that caused mm. bone to grow deformed. And, you know, bones got holes in. Well, this causes the bones to grow bigger. The holes are bigger. It's less dense. <clears throat> so my spinal column, they're they're quite packed, densely packed. And mine were too big. Too, the holes are too big. So basically one of my vertebrae collapsed. Uh, and it collapsed on the way home from Gary Newman, but I was so full of the joys of spring that I didn't remember. So I got home and was ill. I then went to, was rushed to hospital, and basically after nine months, um, three months in a terminal ward, because everyone thought I was dying again, um, I left hospital with a totally new spine that had been rebuilt and had lost the ability to walk. So I had a very strange relationship with like, my impairment, because mm-hmm. I've always been disabled, but I also went through that thing of, becoming unable to do all the things I could do before. You know, before yeah. I could run, I could jump, I'd play sports, uh, I'd dance. I competed in a 24-hour dance marathon at one point. And I, oh. I, I did lots of, I mean, you know, I was quite arty and quite sport. I wasn't very sporty, I must admit, but I was good at hockey. Mm. <laughs> anything I was so I did that. Um, and I swam like a fish. And suddenly I went in a chair and lots of my ideas about what I might do for the future went. So I... I had to go through that grieving period. And I think for many people who are born with an impairment, I don't think they they can always imagine the grief that people who become disabled feel. Um, and I think that if you're born, you go through another kind of grief. You kind of almost have to learn to love who you are because everyone's going kind of things like, oh, well, you know, you're doing as well as you can for you. And yeah. The other people kind of missed the person they thought they were going to be or the person they were. And I think 
as I've got older, I've realised that 15 is a perfect time. If you're going to go and join the club properly, join the club at 15. Because you've done nothing, but you also haven't really built a life for yourself. I was still very much a, a, a mummy's boy. I was very good. I was really clever. I did all my homework. And then I kind of came, I went in the chair, and all the things I was going to do, I had, I mean, this is 1981, the beginning of a lot of unemployment. Lots of my friends couldn't find work. And I'd got eight job offers because I was really clever. One of them I'd rent for and I'd got the highest score anyone had ever got in the entry exam. You know, it was mm. a dad's fact, my stepdad's factory. And he was over the moon. And that went, you know, all that went. All, all my, my girlfriend dumped me, everything. And so I had to rebuild. Um, but I didn't. It, you know, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to work in my dad's factory. You know, I wanted to be a pop star or work, you know, be cool. And yeah. genuinely, I kind of thought, I'd, I'd, I'd been told I was dying and I was in a hospital where they went, no, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do, you're going to die. Then they went, oh, no, actually, we're wrong, you're not. But I stayed in that ward for, for quite a long while and everybody else died. The whole ward died. Wow. And I saw, th- I mean, uh, <laughs> years later, I went to see Hellraiser 2. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's a, a, a kind of where you go to hell and it, some of the scenes are set in a hospital ward in hell. And that was very much like my hospital ward at that time. Yeah. Things were going on that were really grim. And it meant I left and I thought, well, I know what it's like to die. I know what it's like to, to lose everything. And I want to make sure I enjoy life. And I think that's been that was the, the so that moment and that period set me on a path to build a completely new life. That has meant I've done so many amazing things, been so many amazing places and things I would never have done if I hadn't have had that spinal collapse at 15. So <clears throat> me becoming paralysed wasn't, uh, or you know, more paralysed, <laughs> becoming disabled plus, uh, it wasn't a terrible thing. It kind of felt like it at the time. But afterwards, I kind of realised that actually this is the beginning of of something amazing and and to be honest ever since it's just been building on that amazing experience after amazing experience after amazing experience so mm. yeah it's and it's not a story you hear often it's not a side of it that the press mm. cover and the media cover and people talk about you know even if you get like a paralympian they're always kind of talking about overcoming their whatever and you know it, it's not like actually my life would have been crap if i hadn't have been disabled like this uh, yeah. i'd have worked in a, in a bank or an office i'd have you know probably married the wrong girl i'd have probably been divorced i you know, I'd have more i mean all those things are lovely marriage mortgage lovely but instead i went off and became a tv presenter and a pop star and and kind of had a wonderful life and <laughs> crazy stuff and you know and i know when i when i next go in a terminal ward and lay in a bed and see everyone else dying around me and going, I'm going soon. I've got so much stuff to look back on that I wouldn't have had that, you know, it's been a really great roller coaster. <laughs> mm. Yes, yeah, it's hard. So, you're saying, obviously, for the first 15 years, you was, no, it's a horrible word, but fairly normal in you know, quotation marks. So would you say your experience of education was just like any other kid? You just oh, kind of yeah. skip what I mean, I, mean, I had, I, I mean, if anyone knows Ian... I, you know, I wasn't really like the injury because one of my legs worked neither of his did I, I, one leg my left leg worked fine kick ball, ball run about do whatever it's just I had a right leg that was slightly paralysed from just above the knee so I wore a caliper on that leg so it would hold me up so I was a bit rubbish at running but if anyone bullied me I'd kick him in the 
testicles with my legs <laughs> so they'd stop bullying me. So I became feared because no one wanted that <laughs> as I got older. So, so the man with the leg. I, I kind of had a, uh, you know, there was bits, you know, I couldn't run a bike. So I had to wait until my parents could buy a tricycle. Um, I, you know, but it was pretty normal. And as well, my parents did a lot of work to hide the, the big stuff from me. So I didn't know how ill I was as a kid. I didn't, you know, I was told that, you know, kind of everyone who had my tumour survived now because of what they'd done with me. It was only years later, I mean, like the last 10 years, that I learned that still today, most kids that get the cancer I had have a really big struggle ahead of them. So it was kind of, I was really shielded from the what the social model of disability, really. I, I wasn't, I, I hadn't heard of it then. I didn't know what it was. Um, mm. And I had lots of, other people kind of make out that being disabled was a bit rubbish because you can't do that and you can't do that and you're broken. But it's not how I felt. I didn't feel inferior. In fact, I would say that going to a mainstream school and being with kids who were apparently normal made me learn that actually they were a weedy bunch of useless types. And I was in some way some kind of superhuman that was so much better than the rest of them. (laughs) And to be honest, I still feel that today. So I kind of have wandered through my life instead of, you know, everyone kind of says, oh, well, when you're disabled, you're made to feel inferior. And to be honest, my experience has always been that I was that I was stronger that if something happened that was bad I would get through it and they would all go mm. I can't do it so, yeah. um, so I kind of so I've never had that feeling of being inferior but there's still a lot of stuff that you I think that you bring with you um, when I was seven my dad died of a heart attack and I lost count of the number of people that said oh, that, that was having you that was that was all the stress of having you and I honestly I, I didn't really think about it but I grew up thinking I'd killed my dad because and it's the kind of thing you get said to, uh, that you get told when you're disabled, that, oh, having you was so hard. They had to struggle. They had to sell their lovely house and move so you could go to school. And it's like, it's not my bloody fault. <laughs> mm, <laughs> no. But you're, when you're a kid, you get that. So I think that that's the one, that's something that, um, that, that, that did me. I think that's one of the experiences I had of being disabled. But yeah, I could run, jump, skip. I went to mainstream school. I, I didn't experience being excluded from most stuff. Uh, but I did experience that kind of othering and that kind of the way that people lay guilt on you, even though they don't think they're not doing it purposely. They're not being mal- you know, malicious, but they yeah. can't help saying it. And the other thing I learned, which has always been a fantastic boon to my life, is the realisation that most non-disabled people will tell you you're amazing for trying, not for succeeding. And I remember when I was at sixth form, I mucked about like you wouldn't believe. I went to sixth form. My mum said, you go to sixth form, you'll get yourself a social life. I'd only been in the chair a year. I hadn't really got any friends. I went to sixth form college to meet girls and go to parties. And I did it with gusto. And I didn't really bother, and I left sixth form. I managed to get an A-level, but I didn't get much else. And all of my friends who also failed were in so much trouble with their parents. And yet I was told, yeah, it's fine, great, brilliant, whatever, don't matter. Just Mm. great fun. And I also remember once doing a cross-country run when I was eight. (laughs) Never forget this. And I, you know, and go, whistle blows, everyone runs off. And within about a minute, I couldn't see anyone because I was so slow compared to everybody else. Yeah. And I eventually got back to the school and the entire school, the other, all the other kids had arrived, showered, 
changed and gone home. So there was uh, me and an irate um, caretaker going, hurry up, boy, I've got to lock up. So I kind of quickly got changed and I went home and I thought, well, I don't think anyone's ever come in that late. You know, I was so last, I was, it was almost another race had started. If I was at the Paralympics, <laughs> I would have won gold for being the worst. But anyway, the next morning, they're all handing out awards. Yes, it was that kind of school where people won awards. And um, they went, and now a special award for Michael for taking part, and the whole school applauded me for being rubbish. And I remember thinking, I mean, one, they were all sat on the floor, and I was sat on a chair, <laughs> sit cross-legged. So I was towering above them all. So now I had all of the school looking at me, and I just went bright red. But I also remember thinking, this is amazing. I'm being given an award for being the worst one at this thing because of who I am. This, I'm sure, will stead me in good stead when I get older. And it has. Because I've always gone into things and thought, well, if, I, if I'm rubbish, people will still tell me I'm amazing for trying. Uh, <laughs> off. And when the pressure's off, you do brilliantly. It's mm. only when people think, oh, my God, I've got to do really good. And I found this. If I go into a situation where I feel the pressure to perform, I'm rubbish. But if I go in and think, well, I don't care. I always do brilliantly. And so it was something I learned very early on. And I think, again... Another thing I would never have had. If I wasn't disabled, I'd have just been... I know I'd have been rubbish at sport. I know it. <laughs> My poor father wanted me to play for Luton Town, and he bought me a Luton Town strip <laughs> when I was born. I had a baby's Luton Town strip to be put into. <laughs> and about you know, six weeks later, it's like, oh, I'm ever so sorry he's dying. And then about eight weeks later, oh, and he's paralysed. And it was like... <laughs> oh. <I> mean, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, again, my future would have been for a failed Luton Town footballer. <laughs> <laughs> a great let down to my father. Something <laughs> being like a failed Man United player, but something being a, a failed Luton Town oh, player. Many, many <laughs> of my friends would, would have you for that. You know, Luton, 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 what my great team. Uh, yeah. I, I only used to go to Luton Town because it was really good for fighting, but we won't go into that because I was a team. <laughs> so. And also because whenever I did get caught, I'd kind of go, don't hit me, I'm disabled. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we know how to work it. That's, that's, uh, that's it. That's it. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Coventry fan, so, um, yeah. That's, uh, I, I, I must admit that the other thing, I, I know very little about football or sport or any type at all. Um, so I don't know if Coventry City are better or worse than Luton. I just we're, we're probably in the, same, we're in the same league. Yeah. So we're Do you know what? Years later, I was hired to present at the wheelchair rugby on the Paralympics in 2012. And I was terrified. I mean, I know nothing about sport. <laughs> I'd never seen a wheelchair rugby match, let alone, I was, I was like, oh, God. And luckily, there was a commentator who did the stuff about, um, he buzzes it to them, and that's a goal try, what score, whatever it is. And I was just there to kind of, like, keep the thing light and keep the crowd going. And mm. it was hilarious because, you know... <laughs> Honest to God, I was like a fish out of water. I had no idea what was going on. And it took me about two days to work out what was happening. Because it just seemed to be lots of guys in very weird chairs crashing into each other. And then lots of times out where people are going, oh, stop, stop, he's hurt. And it'd be like, these guys are playing a sport that I think should only be played by people that don't think they're disabled enough. (laughs) And the French team had a guy in it and he was brilliant. And he kept, he was one of their attackers or whatever they're called. And he kept getting thrown out of his chair and he had... No arms and no legs because he'd had uh, sepsis. Mm. But it also affected his other stuff, his organs. And one of the things was, if he lay down, he couldn't breathe. 
So he'd get thrown out of his chair, land on the floor, and then someone had to rush out and pump his chest while someone else righted his chair. And then they'd kind of go, early up, and they'd lift him into his chair, and he'd go, <gasps> and then he'd start playing again. And you'd be like, you're absolutely bonkers, mate. But they were, the French team were brilliant. They were all out the back smoking and like, well, oh, yeah, you English, you're crazy. But the English team were like, oh, God, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? Like, all right, guys, sorry, you know, I'm here for the hair and teeth, mate. <laughs> that's mental that is actually mental but, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was definitely fun yeah to, to go back you're saying obviously uh, you having kind of that first 15 years of not really being disabled and then you collapsing and um, yeah. from then on going into the wheelchair what before that what was your plan beyond school and then how did that then change after well, I didn't, have a plan. I didn't have a plan beyond school before I became a wheelchair user because I was doing what I was told. So I was very much that kind of kid. I was a working class boy from Luton. My father used to work in Vauxhall. My stepfather ended up was, worked in a place called Hayward Tyler that made pumps for atomic submarines. And I remember going to take your son to work day. And sitting there and watching all these guys work in the factory and just going, oh, my God, this is just so not for me. But mm. I didn't have any choice. I wanted to do art. I wanted to do music. I wanted to do all lovely things. And my mum and dad said, don't be stupid. Get a job. So I did physics, technology, um, uh, technical drawing. I did O-levels a- a- in all of these kind of things I loathed. Uh, but I, that was what I was going to do. So my future would have been leave school um, to be honest, I've been offered a job as a trainee manager at the Midland Bank, directly opposite where I lived. And I thought that might be quite nice because that's quite a nice job, sitting in an office. Yeah, you can have a loan. No, you can't. That's good. And that was sort of it. And all the things I if I wanted to do music, I'd already started playing in bands. Um, was stuff that my mum and dad said, look, do as a hobby. It's not a job. You never get a job as a musician. And then when I went in the chair, all the sensible jobs just went. <laughs> and I tried for a bit to work, like I said, in the Dole office in <laughs> in Luton. Claims 80k, fresh claims. I was a fresh claims clerk. And this was at the height of the new romantic phase. So I was <laughs> heavily made up to go to work because that was back before you had to have a uniform to go to work in, in the uh, job centre, was it now called? Um, yeah. And so I was a kind of Simon the Bon robot creature. Um <laughs> And I, uh, <laughs> or uh, um, I can't even say what someone, one of the claimants called me, but it, it was <laughs> Boy George. The other two words were too rude to, to repeat. Um, but and I tried a sensible job, but I just couldn't. I, uh, even, I mean, this office was meant to be accessible, but it wasn't. I injured myself at work. And when I said I've got to take a couple of days off, basically I broke my toe getting in a lift. And I said, I, I can't get my shoes on because my toes are so swollen. So as soon as they go down, I'll put them on and come to work. I couldn't feel the thing, so I didn't care. And they were like, well, that's it. If you ever take any more time off again, we knew employing someone disabled would be a bad idea. So forget it. And I went, all right, then sod you. So I left. Uh, I had to work two weeks notice. And I went into the <laughs> computer room, which had punch cards, because that's how long ago this is. Uh, <laughs> and I gave every single friend of mine an extra year's benefit I give anyone that I like the name of or anyone I remember that was nice an extra year's benefit. I cost them an absolute fortune. And then I left. And that was the last time I ever did a sensible job. Um, I went to the Dole office, to, to the job centre, because they were at that time the separate entities. And they said, there's no point trying for a work. You're unemployable. Sign on sick. And they put me on what was then called invalidity benefit. 
And that was it. I was now never going to work again. And it was something that happened to loads of disabled people back then. Um, the early 80s were when lots of disabled people were told, don't bother, because uh, it was a really high unemployment rate. And it was much easier to just say, put them on the, this benefit. They get more money. It's much easier to do. Sorted. So that's what we did. And that allowed me to <laughs> begin. All of my friends were also on the dole because we were all weird, punk, outrageous, alternative people. And we all formed bands and became photographers and filmmakers and artists and painters. And it was really weird that a huge creative explosion came out of that. And that scene, the alternative scene, was probably the most non-ableist, didn't care, you're disabled, so what? So it was really weird. I didn't have any, you know, I'd, go, I'd work in casual clubs as a DJ or playing in the band, and I'd get all this real weird hostility. Um, you know, Blake's coming up and you talking to my girlfriend. Like, no, I'm just talking to your, I didn't know she was your girlfriend. You're going to go home with you now. You're not a real man and all this kind of stuff. Or going up yeah. to going, you know, you want to come home with me because I'm a real man, not like this freak. And you'd be like, what? And then you'd go to a casual, you know, like an alternative club and everyone would be like, nice hair. <laughs> that was it. You know, and so it was really weird. So I, I did music a lot. I did DJing a lot. And that led me, I was, playing in a club in Newton uh, <laughs> and my computer blew up yes even back then I was useless at technology <laughs> but I could fix it back then I knew what I was doing so I opened it up and fixed it and told jokes because I thought you don't want to get you, don't, you know you're going to get bottled off on stage in Luton if you don't was, was, that, was that a matter of just like slapping it on the top yeah, it, it used to it. be but no a fuse <laughs> blew so I had to go in and get a nut driver out and change a fuse it was very technical but I did that while <laughs> telling jokes and mucking about and then played a couple of songs left and everyone was like, yeah, that was great. And a guy came up to me afterwards and said, that was amazing. I am a producer from Thames TV. And I, have, I don't think I've ever seen anyone manage to keep an audience entertained while they fixed a black box. <laughs> so would you like to come and do a screen test for a TV show? I was like, yeah, cool. So I thought, wow, you know. And this was at the beginning of that time where everyone on telly got a record deal. So I thought this could be my chance. So <laughs> I went down and did a screen test, got a job presenting a show on Thames Television called Help Roadshow with Toya Wilcox, Simon Fanshaw and loads of other people and Garth Brooks, not Crooks, one of them anyway, the footballer uh, and lots of people and there was loads of people like me that were starting doing their career, lots Simon was new and, and Simon now runs I think Stonewall but lots of um, so we did that and I, I honestly just thought that's a bit of fun, it was, it was really nice money <laughs> you know, kind of stupid that is a thing, is another thing. Right. Um, mm. And then uh, Channel 4, and then I was watching Channel 4 telly, and they were going, hello, next week we're going to be talking about disability and clubbing. And I instantly got on the phone and went, are you going to have a disabled person presenting it? And they went, no, I thought of that. And I went, I'm available at very reasonable rates. <laughs> so then I did that, and that got me a job on Channel 4. And I did a load of stuff on what was then called Youth. Youth, man. Y-O-O-F, Youth. And okay. it was television for young people, by young people, produced by, uh, um, uh, what's her name? Janet Street Porter, right? And it was all, yeah, right? And I, yeah, hello, welcome to it. And I did a thing called The Survivor's Guide, which was all about being young and surviving in today's modern society. <laughs> uh, and then I did a show called Sex Toys. Okay. Uh, that was uh, obviously about sex. Uh, and I did a documentary for them 
about disability and sex, one of the first times anyone had talked about it, uh, called Willing and Able. Um, and that's available online on YouTube if you want to see a very young Mick talking to an extremely <laughs> lovely woman about how she stuck a vibrator on a stick and how it under <laughs> And I was just like, what? So I, I remember interviewing her and saying, look, you do know that people are going to watch this on telly, so you've got to remember that you're going to be at Sainsbury's tomorrow and they're going to, oh, when this goes out and go, oh, you're the woman with the She was like, oh, I don't care. I think it's important that people know this stuff. It was, really, it was a lovely show and it kind of led on to kind of a lot of discussions around disability and sexuality that I thought hadn't really happened before. Um, and then I got a weird phone call going, hello. So I'm on a show talking about dildos on sticks. And, and then I got a phone call from someone at Channel 4 going, Mick, we'd like you to present a kids TV show. And I was like, are you change? Sure? <laughs> are you like, hey? um, I go clubbing. I'm in a rock band. I went, oh, you'll be brilliant. So I did this show called Beat That. And it was groundbreaking. Channel 4 had never made a kind of kids TV show before. They, they started making one called um, Boom that also was presented by a disabled presenter called Andrew Miller, who's, who we didn't talk ever when we were on telly. But now we're really good mates afterwards, weirdly. In the last 10 years, we've become really good mates. But, you know, then we were rivals. It was very much like that. Back yeah. Then. All other media people didn't talk to each other because we were all trying for that one job on telly. Yeah. Anyway, and so I did beat that. And it was, it, it was just unbelievable. Um, no one thought anyone was going to watch it. It was a little kid. You know, Hello, you know, we're going to get some kids and they're going to, I don't know, run a hairdresser's or put on a fashion show. Sort of like, can you do it, kids? And I was hired to be the annoying older brother. That was my role. I was bent to, bent to get in their way. But the thing that happened was it was mixed. So there was four non-disabled kids and four disabled kids that had never met. And they were all put together and they had to get on. And it was to show, you know, underlying that, you know, everyone's the same. And, you know, if you, ha- if you help each other, you can all get on, all this kind of stuff. But what was great about it was it was the first time that the disabled kids had ever met anyone like me. So I was all, I looked like Billy Idol. I'd got bleach spiky hairs covered in leather and bike boots and God knows what. And they felt like it was their show because the presenter was one of them. And mm. it was really, really sweet. And it, and it, everyone loved it. And it went, it got like between two and three million viewers a week uh. for a show that was on Channel 4. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a primetime kids show. It was on, and I think one of the reasons was it was on a Sunday morning. And Sunday mornings back then were even more rubbish than they are now. And so you had religion, sport, politics, and me. And so the kid, yeah, anyone went click, 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 no, no, no. Oh, it's that weird bloke. Let's watch this. <laughs> and I would go clubbing and all these people would be like, I saw you on the telly last, uh, yeah, last Sunday. You were brilliant. I'd be like, why are you watching kids TV? On <laughs> um, uh, later on, I'm not going to say how, but I discovered why uh, and found out that you, some people are awake on a Sunday morning after going clubbing on a Saturday night. But anyway, uh, so, but it, it was really weird. And that was the thing that kind of catapulted me. And I kind of went from being a bloke in a band that did a bit of telly to being a well-known TV presenter. And I, you know, became a celebrity and the show was sold to America, Australia and Canada. And that became even more weird because it was massive in America, massive in Canada, and massive in Australia. And I've got things like the cover of TV Weekly from 1992 oh. with me on the cover. And it's just the weirdest thing to have been mm. so famous somewhere else. I, I was at an event in the, in the noughties and um, a playwright was there. And I, uh, she was blind, and I'd seen her play, and I thought it was brilliant. I was just sitting talking to uh, Jenny Seeley from Grey Eye, 
And all of a sudden, these women rushed over and went, oh my God, it's Mick Scarlett. And I was like, uh, she went, I watched you as a kid. Your voice is so recognisable. I've wanted to meet you. You're my hero. And I was just like, this is the most bizarre thing ever. <laughs> and it was like, you know, and, and it's really weird. Now I, I meet generations of people who are in the media that say, watching you on telly made me realise I could do it. And I kind of feel sad because then I went to work at the, what was called the DPU, Disability Programs Unit at BBC. And that was a show made, it made lots of different programs. It made one called From the Edge. It made a documentary series called Over the Edge. And then it advised all of the other output on television about how to do disability. And for about 10 years, you had a whole department, a whole floor of of White City at the BBC was filled with disabled producers, directors, researchers, everyone, all of us disabled. And we made a show and it was, yeah, it was a bit slow and a bit old fashioned because all telly was. But what it made was television for disabled people. And it's kind of the job that your podcast is doing now. It was a show where you'd go, here, hi, I'm disabled. I'm a presenter. Now I'm talking to a disabled person about their life. Now I'm going to go and do some sport. Now I'm going to go and show you some art. Here's a holiday item. You know, and it was like a magazine show, but just for us. And mm. I, I genuinely love doing it because I think, and I think that today there's a massive gap because there's, the media does television for, like, about disability, but it doesn't do it for disabled mm. people. So it'll kind of go, hello, this is what it's like to be blind, or this is what it's like to be a wheelchair user, or this is, and this is what it's like to have autism. And you're like, yeah, but I, I know that. I've got it. <laughs> you know I, mean? I want to know what I can do. I want to know, you know, that like, like um, a friend of mine recently uh, had a brain tumour and when he, when he had the surgery, it, it took his eyesight. And he was a big motor racing, bikes, racing cars, he just anything with an engine. And he was so down. And so I got him a load of links so he could go motor racing, you know, visually impaired motor racing. And it's like, I didn't mm. know he could do that. It's like, no, and that's the bloody point. Because I used yeah. to do a show where we'd get a visually impaired presenter to go motor racing. And then you'd go, oh, I can go motor racing. And that we miss. And I think there's a huge gap in the industry, and I still do. But anyway, so I did that uh, for 10 years. And then in 1999, I was celebrating signing a massive contract with ITV to do a show that was going to be Mick Scarlet and his show on primetime. And I was coming home and I was going round Marble Arch in London. An articulated lorry ran quite the corner and crushed my sports car. It crushed my car. It crushed me. <laughs> and it broke my back again. <laughs> oh, so I, was no. I went to hospital. Um, and uh, well, it didn't go straight away because I didn't know. <laughs> no one mm. could find I'd broken my back because I was already paralysed. So they didn't know until it became very messed up. Um, and it meant that I'd spent about two years not slowly not being able to work because I was just so ill. And then uh, I was taking stronger and stronger painkillers. And because I was very rock and roll, people went all mixed on heroin because it was all heroin yeah. back then. So, so eventually I gave up television. I had my spine rebuilt. I am now m- mostly titanium in my back. So I'm I'm actually worth about two hundred and fifty thousand pounds of scrap. In fact, that was that was at scrap level about ten years ago. I'm probably worth more. So anyway, um, and that left me. I still do a bit of media, but you know, it, it's a very weird industry. It kind of one they like new people. So if you've done it, you've got to keep doing it. Because if you disappear, then you're gone. Mm. But also, um, it, the industry's got such a quick turnover that 
you can be working on a show and then you don't do a show for a week and then you come back and everyone's new. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. I was working, I've been working on three shows in the last year and everyone on the show has gone. So unless you keep ringing them up and going, hello, remember me? Yeah. No. And so, um, so, so I, I, and that's fine because, you know, I, I want new talent. I like that. I want to come back. I really do. I want to come back. I'm telling you. But I've got another lovely career, um, trying to make the world more accessible and inclusive. And I tell you what, I'll pay better. <laughs> <laughs> People think television pays well. It really, really doesn't unless you're, you know, Graham Norton or someone. So, yeah. Um, but uh, the inclusion job I do is much better. I mean, I, I've never had, uh, I can actually afford to live now, whereas television would be loads of money, nothing, loads of money, nothing. So, yeah. That's that's, that's was, was, it quite, was it quite unpredictable in terms of pay when you were working oh in, in the media on TV? One, it took quite a while to get, because one of the things was, I mean, this still happens, but it happens less than what it used to. There was an attitude that said, well, um, you're lucky to have a job. Originally, when I first started, it was quite, there was a big push. You know, this is 1989, 1990. Big push mm. to get disabled people in. But then I think what happened was that, that that push became resented by the people that made the programs. So then they would try and get out of paying you the going rate. And I know that some of the shows I worked on, I got paid pennies in the pound of what other people would be paid. And when you started asking for the money that you, you'd find out, you'd go to parties, you'd talk to other presenters and go, you get what? Um, mm. I remember uh, presenting a, uh, a school's documentary one hour for a, for a school's outlet and it was pr- produced by a production company. I went in and they said to me, how much do you want? And I said an amount and they went, yeah, per day, brilliant. Straight like that. And I was like, I meant for the whole shoot. And then I realised, oh my God, how stiff am I that I thought I was getting a good deal asking for an amount of money per day, for like for, for a whole two weeks of shooting, and they said, no, we'll pay you that a day. And I'd say, ah, ah, and it was like that. And uh, Judy Fernandez, a really good friend of mine, she was another um, one of those kind of people coming up in the 90s, disabled presenter, um, actress in El Dorado. And she was doing <clears> another show, and she discovered how much everyone was getting paid, and she went into the producer to say, look, I, I think I should have more. And he generally said to her, well, you're lucky to have a job at all. Because, you know, right. most disabled people wouldn't get the chance. And I think that was something that happened a lot. So everyone thought I was a millionaire because I was on telly. <laughs> I wasn't. So um, it took me about 10 years to get my fee up to the price that it should be. Um, but then I got crushed under a lorry. I'll never forget, I was laying in bed in hospital, in, in, at home waiting to go into hospital because I was so ill I just couldn't do anything. <laughs> And I got a phone call going, oh, hello, this is Radio 4. We'd like you to present a, a series for us. I was like, I can't do anything. I'm going to be in, in hospital. And they went, oh, okay. And Matt Fleming Fraser got it. <laughs> Matt, I love you. Uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah. And it is quite, I mean, it's quite a cutthroat industry. It's a bit better now, I think. There's a lot more. Because one of the things that never happened was we never supported each other. You know, there was a real kind of because i always say that one of the problems about being disabled in lots of industries but especially in the media is that it's kind of a bit like highlander in that there can only be one highlander is a film from the 80s folks if you haven't seen it it's it's very strange it's got um uh sean connery who's scottish playing uh, a spaniard 
It's got uh, an, uh, a French actor playing a Scottish person. It's <laughs> but it's about people that are immortal but have to kill each other, take their energy until there can only be one. Uh, and this is, you know, if you haven't seen it, see it, it's worth it. It's one of those 80s films where everyone goes, cool, the 80s were weird. Anyway, <laughs> but it, the point of it was the catch title was Highlander, there can only be one. And that's mm. what it's like if you're disabled. If you, how many shows have you seen where there's more than one presenter that's disabled? They just don't. Yeah. And you no. end up where you're all at each other's throats. So, and you're all thinking, well, that's my gig. I want that gig. I don't want them to get it. And it, so instead of lifting each other up, you're kind of pushing each other down because you don't want them. And that happened a lot back then. Um, and I, I, it doesn't happen so much now. And I think it's fantastic. You know, there's, there's things like Dank, the Disabled Actors Network, that kind of really mean that that everyone's lifting each other up. So we don't care who gets it as long as someone gets it. Um, mm. The other thing that happened so much back then, and still does, is that you'd get non-disabled people playing disabled. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got into acting completely by mistake. I just got rung up and someone said, would you... Um, I joined Equity because that's the only way you could be on television back then. Um, <laughs> so you weren't allowed, it was a closed shop. Uh, so I joined Equity, and then that meant I was the only person in a wheelchair under 30 in Equity. <laughs> so I got all the young people in dis- disabled roles, whether or not I could act, and I blimmin' couldn't. So, uh, <laughs> but it kind of, so you'd go for a role, and they'd go, oh, we'll give it to start. And then you'd see someone not disabled playing the character. And, uh, you know, that still happens, but it's happening less and less. And I think that's, that's because we're working together. So, you know, if you go for a role and they say, well, you're not exactly right for it, you go, ah, but I know someone that is. Mm. And that's happened. That happened. I know that, to me, I've done that loads. You know, I get offered jobs and I go, I don't think I'm right for this, but I do know someone that is. I mean, I got offered presenting Blue Peter and I was just like, no way. You know, I, I sang in rock bands. I, I, was, <laughs> I was having a very good time. And, and Blue Peter, they go after you. So I gave them a friend who, in the end, didn't get it because it was very physical i was known by the bbc as their action cripple because they could throw me up a mountain or off a cliff or, <laughs> or and i'd go yeah all right you know scuba diving uh water skiing uh skiing abseiling i've done all that you know i was very very john noakes <laughs> <laughs> and kind of i don't know why because i hate all that stuff but i, I think it's because i'm the only one that said yes um mm. but yeah so but and and it's and it's scary to think that you know when um, Sherry Bunnell came along you know everyone was like oh my god you know disabled person on presenting television and it was like well that's 2008 I was doing it in 1990 yeah <laughs> and no one batted an eyelid no one I have not one complaint no one sent in and said my kid how am I going to explain this to my kid you know all, nothing everyone was just yep that's cool so it's it, to me it really indicates that we think society always goes forward and it does in some respects but there are others where attitudes go backwards and I think it really proved that because the other thing I think it proves is that you can be disabled in a man, especially in a wheelchair, and there's something sort of heroic and slightly, oh, he probably had a motorbike accident. Look at him. He's got leather boots on and, you know, a jacket. <laughs> As Sherry, or oh, a woman, women are meant to be perfect and demure, and there she is. One, oh, she's flashing her disfigurement. Oh, my God. And I think that it's funny how much it opened up all these kind of conversations about equality and intersectionality and I'm turning into my new job here of equality and inclusion expert. Uh, mm. but I think that, and it, you know, it, it, it was quite, it's quite a nice leap just going from telly where I, I really was hair and teeth. 
like I had funny hair and I was kind of yeah hi kids me yeah, yeah. and and now I go into a room and what I say goes and, and I'm uh, uh, considered an expert which is nice I still <laughs> have funny hair though um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so just ask me a question or I will talk forever. And you, and you, <laughs> I was going to say, throw, you just I, I don't stop. So basically, I mean, I, this is why I got a job in television, because they said, basically, we start rolling and you just talk. And then we can just stop and cut where, you know, there's a gap occasionally where we go, that'll do. So if you've got a question, say, anyway, Mick, yeah. <laughs> moving on. Oh, I was just going to say, you said a minute ago about, um, obviously, people going, oh, look, someone's presenting. I'd say a person's presenting in like 2008 and then you were doing it you know, almost 20 years earlier, and there was no complaints. But I don't, I don't know if you've seen that, um, uh, uh, the BBC documentary a couple of weeks ago, uh, Silenced. Yes. Was, um, oh God, her name escapes me now. Jerry. She's, that's, 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 she's what, on that's, kids. that's the one I was talking about. The, the, yeah. yeah, and she she get, like, complaints like, yeah, no. I'm gonna, like, my, my well, kids she was scared. on the front cover. I mean, do you know what, right? It's really funny, because one of the people I work with at the BBC, who I was working as a presenter when Damon Rose, who is now, like, Lord Almighty of Ouch and all things BBC, and you know he's Mr Disability at the BBC. He started. Now Damon is visually impaired; he is he's blind. Mm-hmm. And the absolute outrage from the press that the BBC had employed a blind person to make telly—you could not believe it. Front page: Oh my God, BBC crazy, useless, waste of taxpayers' money, license fee waste. And he was one of the best producers i worked with they were all brilliant but he was he was so good at because he had his shots described to him he painted with the light so the lighting engineers loved him the lighting crew was like oh but it's damon because he would paint with light and he would all of the items i did with him looked like films they were great but also he was all really interested in what you were saying and you'd be amazed at the number of people in television that don't really care what you're saying as long as it looks good (laughs) Yeah, that, yeah that is. so he was, and, and but it's it, again, it's that thing of, you know, there are some things you're allowed to do and some you're not. So you could be a wheelchair user and talk about dildos on sticks. That was all right, bit shocking, but yeah. But you know, he came along and he was blind and made tell you that was bad. And and I, I mean, I got in a, a bit of trouble on um, when I went. I went to work at the BBC on CBBC. I was making a, a show called Wham Bam that was a poetry show. And I did a couple of episodes. I was with Rick Mayall. So you can imagine what it was like. And um, at the same time, my band that I was in was getting quite big. And we were playing lots of really big events. And mm. we played a fetish party. Now, back then, everyone did. Steps did a video in rubber. It was all the rage. And I might deny it. I did go to fetish clubs. I went to them because it was one of the absolute places I could guarantee that no one would give a monkeys about me being disabled. There was mm. nothing. They'd just go, oh, well, you're one of us, whatever. And it was a real liberation to be completely and utterly considered to be sexual. It sounds strange, but yeah, even yeah. In, the, in the alternative clubs, people would still be a bit kind of, oh, you've got a girlfriend, really? And these were like, well, you're here. It's a, it's a club where we all think about sex a bit. So <laughs> we think that we, that's normal. And it, and it was just a real liberation. So I went there. Anyway, so the Daily Mail went, oh, my God, kids TV present to wears leather. And he, he honestly said, Mick, Mick Scarlett, punk fetishist wears leather and chains. And it was like, is this the right man to present tele- kids TV? And it was like, what? I've, been, I've won an Emmy for doing kids TV in a leather jacket with chains on. I don't know what you're talking about. But mm. it became a big deal. And it's one of those things that the press 
have things you can do if you're disabled and things you can't. Yeah, and, they have their own little robots. Yeah, they have, and, and one of the things was you can you you. I mean, I think now looking back on it, I think it was probably because there's lots of other presenters that they knew about that probably had things that they really shouldn't have been doing. Um, but if you know what I mean. Uh, but I was just, I mean, I was in the photograph in the magazine and the news item. I was with my then fiance. Right. So do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't mm. a big deal. I was taking, you know, oh, look, he's with a sexy girl. I'm going to marry her. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I was probably one of the most boring perverts you'd ever met. But it was a case of, it was still, you can you can be television, you can look good. Um, the first item I ever had in a newspaper was called Really Sexy. So it went wow. from, oh, look, new young presenter, isn't he sexy, girls? Ooh, sexy. Yeah. To, oh, my God, he has sex. <laughs> and it was, so you can be sexy, but you can't have sex. And there was, and I think there's, that's, and I think Sherry was another one that really highlighted that, that, that she was a woman and disabled. And that throws up a whole other load of stuff that the society goes about. You know, the yeah. idea that a disabled woman can be open and up and proud and show off her difference without it being a big deal. She didn't wear a prosthetic arm. She didn't hide it. She didn't, you know. Um, and I think that's why it happened. And I think Damon got it because you can't, make something about vision if you can't see you know and i'm sure if i'd have come up and said hello i'm going to be a footballer there'd have been a big shock about that as well but um you know i I think that and i and i hope that that gradually goes and i hope that younger people don't have that weird um thing where they see this where they see so much hostility about someone just doing their job Mm. and there's no i mean there's no follow-up about damon no one ever said oh actually we got it wrong he's brilliant they just you know and I remember meeting some of them the day it was the Daily Mail that did my oh my god he wears leather trousers uh, story uh, and I met him met a Daily Mail writer at a party about a year later after I'd been told that I probably wasn't going to be working on kids television anymore um, and he came out and he went and he, he, he was drunk as a skunk and he had all white powder down his tie and he went oh why aren't you on telly anymore dear boy my son thought you were wonderful you're so funny and I went Oh, and I looked at his badge and it went, Daily Mail. I went, because you lot ruined my career. <laughs> and he went, oh, it's chip paper, dear boy, chip paper, and then wandered off to the drinks table. And that is one of the things I think that, that hopefully will change. You know, hopefully it's changed that, you know, mm. um, we it's not chip paper. You know, people write bad stuff about disabled people. It, it can really damage our, our careers, our lives. And it damages mm. people that come after us because... You know, whether you like it or not, I was one of the first people, and I, you know, this kind of happened in 95, and the next kind of disabled kids presenter was Addy, that came years later. And, it, and, and I, you know, and I, I feel guilty in some ways, because I know that my, you know, dalliance with bad publicity stopped that movement, stopped that, oh my God, we can't, they're, 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 it's going to prove bad, you know, and... It's one of the things I think as well that people don't appreciate when you're disabled. You're expected to be better than everybody else. You're expected mm. to be some kind of angel and you're, you know, kind of super sweet. And it's like, no, everyone knew I played in a band. Everyone knew, you know, I did stuff that people in bands do. I went on tour, you know, I ended up at late night parties with other band members and did, you know, fancy stuff. I don't want to say too much, but we've all read the autobiographies. It was a lot like that. Uh, yeah. um, you know, and I didn't make any bones about it. And actually the, the young people, you know, the, the people I met were like, oh, this is so cool because 
you're, you, you're showing us we don't have to be boring or normal or nice. You know, we don't have to be a Paralympian. We can be, uh, you know, a rock and roll dude that stumbles out of a nightclub at four o'clock in the morning with a couple of page three girls, which I didn't in any way do ever. <laughs> but, and I think that, you know, uh, so yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll stop waffling. Ask me a question. <laughs> no, it's, it's just, it is fascinating to, to, to just hear your, the, you know, the, we say, I think you touched on it earlier, that we think, or we like to think, society is always moving forward. But then you look back and speak to people like yourself, you know, who were heavily involved in TV and media in the nineties, and like you said, no one, no one's, yeah, still person on TV. Yeah. And what? And now it's just, I think that there has to be some sort of big story around it. If, if someone yes. new has come on TV now. Yeah. You can't. You wouldn't be able to avoid it. Yeah, it's like it's like Sherry came like Sherry, uh, and there's like there's new presenters and there's new uh, actors and stuff coming along. And one of the things that's happening a lot now is that you're getting kind of being cast in a role, and it's not about disability, and that's been amazing. And you're getting presenters like Steve Brown on um, Country File. There's the guy that does the flowers, um, who's a wheelchair user as well. There's there's people coming up that are kind of doing stuff that isn't about being disabled. The problem is there isn't anyone doing it about disabled other than Nikki Fox. And Nikki Fox still kind of goes, hello, here's the news, here's a little bit about disability, bye. And it's mm. sort of, it, it tends to be, oh, it is a bit about benefits, or is a bit, and we did that on this show, From the Edge. And, you know, and it allowed us to, to really, because we had a whole, we had 34 weeks a year of disability-focused television. So you could not do a three-minute item, you could do a three-minute item every week for 34 weeks about one thing. I remember mm. in the late 90s, um, the new Labour government was trying to cut disability benefits, as they are called. And we found some stories of people that were having their lives torn apart by this change. And um, instead of going, oh, it's terrible, you know, some people are having a very bad time. Anyway, here's a government minister to counteract what we've said. We said, right, let's tell people stories. So we found three people that were having a hard time and we followed them. And it meant that you know, one minute, it'd be, it'd be like a minute, then there'd be a gap, then there'd be a 10 minute item on them. But over the 34 weeks, you saw this person's life fall apart. And it meant that when those of us, those people that were campaigning had this wonderful tool to go, look, 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 you can see what's happening. And mm. it, you know, it got to a point with one of the people we were interviewing, we were, you know, you, you're not meant to intervene, but we, we kind of had to, because this person's, you know, they were, they were starving and they were going to get thrown out of their house. And it was and all because they ticked the wrong box on a new form that they couldn't see because they had a visual impairment. And it was just unbelievable. And But it meant that, that power, that thing, as well as let's go on holiday. Here's a new band. Here's a disabled comedian. All this stuff that you don't get. The idea that now to get yourself on telly as a disabled comedian, you have to go on site like X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or something. You know, we, we would have found lost voice guy when he was doing his second gig do you know what i mean because that's what we were on the lookout for these new people new because new you know, we wanted people to know what was going on and that you know I, like i said before I, I think that's missing and i think that you know it's all right to say integration inclusion is all about putting us in the mainstream and it is and i want to see more of it i want to see a wheelchair using doctor or a blind doctor or a deaf doctor i want you know i, that, I want that i want that so much he says <laughs> wishing he could have played davros his whole life he wanted to play Davros. But no, they cast someone non-disabled, of course. But anyway, the, the, the whole thing is as well is that, that we are a huge market. And one of the things is everyone's falling back on podcasts. 
because that's mm. where we find our information. But it's like, that's great, but it shouldn't be that we're ending up making our own shows because there isn't anyone making them. Mm. Which proves there's a bloody market. And, uh, you know, there's so now there's so much talent out there all making podcasts like yourself. You know, how easy would it be to take you and go, plonk, here's a radio show? Do you know what mm. I mean? And then you can talk to people like me, or you can go, right, I'm going to go, you know, the blind lad goes on, you know, blind lad does. And it could be, oh, I'm going to go horse riding. I've never been horse riding before. I'm going to have a go at that. And, oh, I didn't know I could do that. You know, I'm going to go motor racing. I know that all these things that people go, oh, you can't do that because you're blind. And it's yeah. sort of, it, those, that was it. And it was sort of, you know, I just, it, it saddens me because I know I had that. I, I mean, I, because I was one of those kids that was told there's nothing you cannot do. I kind of didn't, I'd just do it and then go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. So I got stuck up a tree or something, which did happen quite a few times. Um, and when I started using my chair, again, I kind of, I started building my own chairs really soon afterwards, you know, and kind of jerry-rigging everything together. And, and I kind of just went out and if I couldn't do something, I complained and, and made it change. My local cinema when I was 17 didn't have access. So I went got the manager and within about a month we'd worked a way of making it accessible and so I was very proactive it's always been how I've been but not everyone's mm. like that people shouldn't have to be super fighty you know kind of inspirational I'm not gonna you know <laughs> you know there's no diss in my ability and all that kind of ass. but yeah. you should be like I want to do this I'm going to do it and that's what's missing that thing of hey have you ever thought that you could do this and, and I, it saddens me. So that's my mm. pitch. Any media people listening, I think we should put together a team of people that all go out and make shows about stuff they can do. Like, why is it that DIY SOS is always lots of non-disabled people making someone who is disabled's house nice? Why aren't you hiring disabled people like me to tell you how to do it? Because it's always, look what we've done for you and not yeah. what we've done for each other. It's it's so exactly the opposite of nothing about us without us. It's kind of real, mm. and you know, and, and the other element. No, I guess I don't worry. I have contacted DIY SRS to tell them how upset I am about this. But one of the things is that they always talk about people. And they go, "Oh, so you, you've had your injury? Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah." And and you think, well, if I was there, I'd be able to go. Do you know what? In a couple of years, you'll be all right, and then this will happen. And you know, you can do that. And we went over there, and and it, and it's sort of that's the thing. We don't get that. You never get that thing where we're a community it's always you know like you said it's it's here's a story about disability and now i'm gonna and we might say nikki fox but we might not i mean last night on the telly they had a thing about two little girls uh, twins that had written a book mm. about stuff they found in their garden to raise money for motor neuron disease because their dad had motor neuron disease and every single time they talked about disability they used in the term that i consider to be offensive so he was suffering from motor neurone disease um and it was you know it, it you know people with disabilities not disabled people you know and all this kind of stuff and it was sort of it's so out of date and they should know better and again when i was in this dis disability programs unit we made a guide on all this stuff in the 90s we told people what language to use how to shoot different people how to like for example if you're interviewing someone that's visually impaired make sure they know where the camera is so, mm. so they're not, they've got, they've got someone, a, a direction. Cause obviously sometimes you're, you're, uh, if you're doing a piece of the camera, you need to know where the camera is. If you're being interviewed, you talk to the interviewer, but other, yeah. and it was all stuff. And there were all these little tricks that we taught that help people like, you know, if you're going to interview someone in a wheelchair, don't shoot down, shoot at eye level and all that stuff so that they look, they're empowered. Um, mm. 
and, and how to do a story. Don't don't make it about someone having a bad time. Make it about them and them success. If you're going to tell a story about bad things, make sure that they narrate it. Don't narrate it for them. Don't say, oh, well, look at the terrible situation. This poor little thing's in. Don't <clears> talk <throat> about inspirational, you know. It, it, and, 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 and the thing is, is everyone who's disabled says that now. Oh, God, I'm so sick of seeing inspiration porn. The thing was, we were telling them not to do that in 1996. Yeah. So it's not like they didn't know. They just took the book we wrote and tore it up and went, ah. Pff, uh. Anyway, uh, should we go back to doing things the old way? Because they're easy. So, mm. yeah. Anyway, ask me another question. Because yeah. otherwise I'll probably go, ah! <laughs> You've got to edit this, mate. <laughs> I, 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 could, I could probably let you just, just speak. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Check it out. There we go. Everyone listen. <laughs> but, um,. <laughs> what? It's an extra. It's a twelve-inch mix. Only <laughs> an hour and seven minutes. <laughs> um, just um, one question I wanted to ask. Obviously, you, you've been obviously in that kind of media industry for best part of twenty years, would it be right? probably more. I don't know if that's I'm accurate. Afraid to say it was thirty. It was, it was thirty. It was, it was, it was two thousand nineteen. It was thirty. Oh my god. Ah, so, yeah. In, in terms of obviously. Us as consumers see all what's on TV. How has it changed, or has it has it, has it not changed behind the scenes? And, Ooh, and good. for you, right? Um, again, uh, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it, it's cyclic. So I think that it, when I first started, it was all non-disabled people making shows about disability, and even the BBC had a disability program called One in Four before this other thing called From the Edge that was being made in the 80s. And one in four was disabled presenters and then an entire non-disabled production team. Then the BBC decided that that was not right and it put together this disability programmes unit, all disabled people, Ian McRae, David Heavey, uh, um, lots of wonderful people all got together, loads of new talent that came up, made shows, Sean Basie, who sadly died recently, lots of great people. Um uh, Elizabeth Morrison, who is now a voice coach for the BBC, darling, um, and lots of so so it was a great place for talent, and that was what the plan was: was we were all going to train up disabled people, and they were going to go out into the mainstream. And it was going to be a breeding ground for new talent. And what it ended up being was a ghetto. We all just stayed there. Very few people broke out. David Heavey did. A couple of others did. Uh, Kim Taziki was a co-presenter with me. Ended up obviously going off to things like Balamori, but even she. Um, we all then, there was a big, um, a new broom at BBC Two that came in in the, in the 2000s. And uh, they decided that uh, inclusion was the new way to go. Not, not, we don't want you to be a special group. We're going to include you in all television. So all you presenters are going to go out and make television. And all you um, producers and directors and researchers, you're going to go into the mainstream. Some of the backroom people did because they had a contract. But us freelancers were more than the way to describe it was we were included onto the dole queue <laughs> so many of us just didn't get and i went for some big jobs um on mainstream shows and was roundly told no and people that were producing it were very upset but we that, that they had these disabled people hoisted on them because one of the things was while inclusion was the catchphrase there was no policy there was no direct do it or else so they all just went no and i remember mm. having one very um pleasant person who made a very main large mainstream show tell me i'm not having any effing cripples on my show to wow. my face which is nice and i had another person that just wheeled me out of the room when i came in she went no wheeled me out so uh, it was lovely um then there was a 
a gap. And, and this is the thing I say about, you know, waxing and waning. Uh, so there was a massive amount of talent. It all disappeared. Then there was a gap. So Gary O'Donoghue carried on presenting for news, but he had to have lots of legal stuff to get himself on screen on primetime because people kept going, no one wants to watch a blind guy present news at six o'clock. So mm. he would he would have his stories taken off him, even though he'd done them and given to a non-disabled presenter, and then he'd do them on radio or on you know daytime or something. And he he, he took a case for that and won. So then he became so that's why he's so the idea that oh isn't it aren't we great with the BBC we've got this guy it's, it's not as easy as that, it, yeah. that we had to fight for it, um, and it was a bit of a battle. This is also at the time when I was too ill to care, so I kind of went oh you all oh, I can't be bothered. I mean I got a job on Tomorrow's World and then it got cancelled. <laughs> So that was that one over. That was my mainstream moment. I did one episode and it got cancelled. Uh, but um, And then there was, like I said, a, a lull where there was a gap where there wasn't that many disabled people on screen. And like I said, Addy was one of the first to come up and he was a new breed. But it, uh, but it wasn't like it was. You know, you, you, you imagine just on my show, like on From the Edge, there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten presenters that were disabled of different impairments. Mm. Then there was someone presenting on Channel 4. Then there was someone presenting on BBC. There was someone on ITV. There was, there was lots of talent. And then there was all the actors coming up, like Matt and stuff like that. And I mean, Matt went to work on, on uh, Channel 4 as a presenter as well. But it wasn't... It, it, it kind of dropped off. And now it's picking up again. And I think behind the scenes is still a problem. There are more... You know, there's loads of, you know, young people coming up that are working in news and working in program making, but they're still, they're only just starting to get their contracts as they were all on the extend scheme. So they were all like, you know, on half price money and kind of, you know, oh, we might give them a job. We're not sure. They've all just started to get proper jobs, but there's not that hierarchy. You know, we had sort of people right at the top of the production, you know, like series editors that were disabled all the way down to runners and researchers. And it and it's not the same. And I think there's still a long way to go. And I'm not heartbroken because I applied at the BBC to to take the job of, of like creative director for disability, but I didn't even get an interview. <laughs> I think my reputation precedes me. But it's, you know, I think that one of the things is there has to be leadership, and I don't think there is. I think that um, disability is one of those threads of of inclusion and diversity that gets forgotten a lot. Or it gets done in a kind of, like you said, oh, it's a story about disability, mm, done it by um, mm. kind of way. Or it gets that, let's get Steve Brown to prevent country file, present country file. And that's sort of, he's disabled, but we're not talking about it. And I think mm. that's lovely, but that's part of the story. But how many people behind the camera on country file are disabled? How many people are on the one show are disabled? How many, you know, where it, we need that lot, but we need managers. We need senior execs and managers and commissioning editors to be disabled because then they'll spot the shows that should be made and the shows that shouldn't and I think there's a lot of stuff going out now that either reinforces stereotypes or that covers a story from a funny angle an angle that without being funny I grew up watching that kind of about you television the kind of freak show stuff Mm. and that was the only time I ever saw disability as a kid and what's shocking is that that kind of resurfaced and so you've got a lot of shows about you know kind of oh let's follow this disabled person as they do something and you're kind of like yeah I, I, I don't feel comfortable having that window into someone's life um, mm. 
and lots of people talking for us as well. But that's that's a problem we all face for everything. <laughs> so I think I mean I hope I mean it's getting better. It's get, I think the thing is it's probably better than where it was when I was doing it a lot because <clears> there is more people embedding in the mainstream. Yeah, um, and I think that's good. And I think that hopefully they'll be able to make a change. I mean, the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm 56 this year, so I'm an old duffer. And, you know, I, I started doing television, you know, when I was 23. So kind of it's, 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 it's a long old journey. And so things always wax and wane. And I think that, like I said, we're on a, we're on a, on a new upward trajectory. The reason why it matters that we remember that this has happened before is so that they don't make the same mistakes. We don't let people say, oh, well, we've done that. We fixed it. Because that's what happened. Everyone went, well, we fixed this ability. We've got all these people. Let's include them. Bye. Let's cancel that. Close the department. Mm. Lovely. And suddenly, you've got this massive gap. And it could so easily happen again. They could so easily go, oh, we've got Steve on Country Files. Oh, we've done it. That's all right. And then the next thing you know, you know, Steve leaves Country File. And then the next thing he's going, I can't get another job. And then someone else goes. And, then, and suddenly, we've managed again. And then and it, it can't be that we've spent probably since the mid-noughties, getting to this point. <laughs> and that's a long time mm. trying to get back to kind of where you were already. It's like Liz Carr on Silent Witness. Do you know who the first disabled actor was on Silent Witness? Me, <laughs> right, in the 90s, <laughs> right? But again, I popped up and left. I mean, actually, I was playing me, so it was a bit of a weird role. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you meet them in the BBC bar. But anyway, so... You shouldn't, it shouldn't have been that long, you know, there shouldn't be that. And then all of a sudden we're doing it. And then the silent witness is a perfect example of someone getting it really right. Mm. They continue to get it right. And part of that reason is because Liz led them and said, look, this, let's, let's not make it about disability. Let's keep it, but also let's, let's tell a story now. The, the episode where Liz let the disability, you know, the disability be the, the part of the story, I thought was one of the most powerful things on television I've ever seen. She was brilliant. The writing was brilliant. The whole story was brilliant. But it's mm. very, lots of times you get told that you're being difficult if you try to make, try to help them get it right. I mean, I've worked on films and television as an actor and gone things like, well, this wouldn't happen. And by doing that, they go, well, we'll get someone else. They won't, they don't listen to you. I remember going for a part <laughs> on a film. Cool. Greenwich Mean Time. And the actor that I was playing, uh, the role I was playing, was for a fun guy that uh, uh, the lead character, who was also disabled but was being played by a non-disabled actor, again, um, met in hospital. And I was a fun guy. And then at the end of the my part in the film, I killed myself. But um, apparently I do it by jumping off the roof of a hospital. Now, without being funny, I don't know about you, but I'm absolutely positive that hospitals do not have wheelchair accessible roofs. <laughs> no other reason, and it stops people that are a bit down after being told they'll never walk again jumping off them. So I said this won't ever happen because of, you know they don't make lifts to the roof in hospital for. <laughs> and they were like, oh well, yeah, it really happened. And I went, no, and it, I got really upset. I went, no, bloody didn't. And they went, oh, well, it didn't happen like that. No, well, what happened was the guy went home and he got depressed and he killed himself about six months later. And I said, well, then why haven't you put a shot in, which is him at home? So instead of the shot of him jumping off the roof, you have one extra shot of him just sitting at home. So you're surrounded by beer, you know, vodka bottles and pizza boxes, all looking shit, crying. And then the next scene he jumped, and then later on he jumps off a, a car park because that's what he actually did. 
And they, uh, and I was apparently troublesome for saying this, but then they used it and put it in the film, but they you've got a non-disabled actor to play the role. So it's that's what it used to be like, and it's so easy for that to happen because, mm. you know, you, you've got all the seer stuff that's happening at the minute with a use yeah. of magic rubbish and all this. That, you know, oh, I'm trying to be my best, and I want to tell the story of people with autism. And, and it's like, you, you know, just <laughs> do it right. Ask us. And that happens over and over and over and over and over. And it's got to stop. And that's why it needs people at the top. Someone in, you know, the industry needs to be just sitting there going, uh, this is rubbish. Can, can you not? I'd rather pay. I'd rather find more investment and have you cast a, a real autistic actor. You can get your, you know, the, the girl you think's fantastic to play another role, you know, but that yeah. needs, because that then then it's it's realistic and it's it's. You know, the idea that, oh, well, someone with this level of autism wouldn't be able to do the role. It's like, we're not saying that everyone's got, you know, if someone played me in a film, they wouldn't have to have exactly the same level of spinal cord injury. I would be okay. If, I think it would be okay as long as they used a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to go, oh, hang on a minute, you've got the, it says in here that you're missing a left leg and actually you're only missing, you're missing a right leg and we can't <laughs> have that. Like, right, wrong, you know, it's fine. You know, and I think that's the, that's, all that's got to go. And I think that, the big thing is, is that we as a viewer have to start speaking out. Every time you see something on telly that you think isn't empowering or you think doesn't represent your community, make it known. We have a power now that we never had before. You could watch telly before and you'd have to write a letter and it would go to points of view. And, <laughs> and they'd just go in a bin, right? Whereas now you tweet, you Facebook, you know, you Instagram, you get it out there. You, you, you tell why. Why is this wrong? Why is music wrong? Why is this casting bad? And eventually, people will get it. Because trust me, I don't think any small filmmaker is going to be touching a disability story for a while unless they go, right, well, we really need to make sure this has got a disabled actor in the lead because we're going to be in so much trouble. (laughs) And and that's just us. We did that. Disabled people, yeah. the community, and, and using our voices. So that's something we need to do. And I think, you know, that, that will help us change the world. And, and you also think it's, it's important that what we see on TV needs to fully represent actual society now. And that, because well, if we look on TV, we just see able-bodied, you know, people on the one show, for example. But, yeah, you, you don't really yeah, kind I mean, of see it beyond that. I mean, the perfect example is we just had It's a Sin. Now, I haven't watched it yet because I grew up then. Um, pretty much all of my friends back then were gay. Lots of them I lost. So I'm kind of girding my loins because it's going to be quite personal for me because, I, you know, I, 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 it, yeah, it was something I experienced. But um, the reason why that's so popular and why that's gone down so well is partly because it was written by a gay man about a period where it's real to him. So he, and then he said, "I'm going to cast gay actors." So, so that there's there, and people say, "Oh, but they're acting." So why can't? And I'll tell you the reason why. Because when you're disabled, if you're playing disabled, if you're playing someone with an impairment like yours, you already know how to do that. You haven't got to research it. You haven't got to think, "Oh, right, how do I do that?" So while you're acting your role, you're not thinking, "Well, what does someone in a wheelchair sit like?" Right, and that's the thing. So you're giving 100% of your acting talent to acting you're not thinking right you know everyone goes well that my left foot and it's like yeah but if you watch it it's he spends so much time trying to be disabled that it's like 
yeah, I mean, great. No, I don't think it is. I think that the we deserve to see people who are disabled playing disabled. I think we need disabled people telling disabled stories. And I think that means that, one, I know when I used to interview disabled people, there was a camaraderie there. There was a shared, we might not share the impairment, but there was a shared experience of otherness. So I'd turn mm. up and we'd talk and there wouldn't be this, oh, here we go. It's going to be someone telling my story, but not the way I want it. You know, yeah. and, and I, I was known, I was not liked, but known by lots of producers for saying to people, are you sure you want to say this? And I would be that buffer because what happens a lot now is that people are like used to be like, oh, can we tell your story? And then it goes out and people are like, I didn't want that. That's not what I thought we were making. And it's even happened to me. So I know, like since, that I know that it still happens, you know, where I was told one thing and then a show came out and I'm like, that's not what I was told I was making. Um, yeah. But, but you know, that's the other thing we do is we, we know we're not there just to make, it's television. It's almost that it's chip paper, dear boy. It's not, it's more than that. We are telling our own stories and I think there's something about it and it feels like here we are talking, we don't share an impairment, but we share that sh- that same experience, that same you know, we grew up at different times. We have completely different life experiences. But yet, when we go out, we still have an otherness. We still know what being excluded is like. We still know what barriers are like, what what access means to us. And that's mm. something. So if we, you know, if we were in a room together, we were chatting, we would, we would have this bond. We're having a bond over the internet. And I don't mm. care what anyone says. There's something about this that is warm and it means something. And, I, I, and that's the thing I think is missing. And I think that's why Nikki Fox is so brilliant. Because when Nikki does disability interviews, you can see she cares. She cares mm. about the people she's talking to. And the people can feel it. They know that she's on their side and she's telling the story for them. She's not there to get, you know, oh, it's all about jeopardy and, you know, all this rubbish that they get taught in media college. You know, she's there because she thinks this is a story that matters to disabled people. And that, we deserve that. We deserve that on the news and we deserve that on the one show and we deserve that on, you know, Saturday morning cooking shows and we, we deserve it everywhere. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's time for that. And as I said, we have the power, you know, if lots of disabled people like things like DIY SOS, but to me, it's an, it's a show that's had its time. It now needs to be the same idea, but it needs to be led by us. It needs to be us helping us. And I think that's what's, what's missing from the, the shows, you know. And I'm glad to hear that you're, I'm not the only one that lives somewhere with alarms, sirens going off. It's made my dad been sitting there, like, you know, living in the cabinet. It's like, woo, 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 everywhere. It's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. God, he lives somewhere like that, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that is my window open. That is, that's, that's what that would be. Ah, uh, uh, see, I'm, I'm sitting sweating <laughs> in a century heat studio thinking, oh, God. <laughs> so um obviously like you say you, you've you've been in tv and media for just about 30 years and you've had your highs and you've had your lows Ooh. is there is there a moment you could pick out where like that was like i don't know how to put it into it like that was a a turning point i suppose for yourself whether it was early on or whether it was quite late on um. I, I think, the, do you know what, I, I could talk about moments in media, and I could talk about moments in career and all that, but there is one moment in my life that is a turning point that my whole life swivels on. And that was, uh, I, <laughs> this is going to be so sad to admit, in 1992, while almost every other disabled person was outside protesting, I 
was part of the presenting team on the Thames Telethon. <laughs> and I honestly didn't know that it was a bad thing. I'd done loads of work to make it more inclusive and more accessible. I changed all the language. No one got wheelchairs. It was a, but anyway, uh, I thought I was doing the right thing. And then I uh, discovered that it wasn't. And I was kind of upset because if they'd have told me that, that whole political lot, that what was wrong and explained it to me the way that what happened happened in a minute, I'll tell you that in a sec. I would have probably live on air done something really outrageous and, you know, it had gotten all the news, but I didn't. Cause, let's face it, I, ha- I was live to all of the viewers a lot, mm. so I could have really done something. But anyway, so when I finished that, I was quite non, persona non grata for many people in the disabled community for, as I later learned, obvious reasons. Um, and I was at a big event, you know, these media things they do oh we're going to talk about how we're going to make more disabled people in the media and they've been doing that since about 1990 so i was at one of those in about 1993 i think uh probably channel four i don't know it, was, it might have been the bafta i don't know it's one of them anyway and they were all having lots of disabled people in a room going aren't we great look here's a, someone on the screen and i was there and uh, a very bad reception lots of people didn't like me um someone i now class as a very good friend gobbed on me <laughs> And I was like, I have no idea why you not hate me. I don't get it. But anyway, I went in a lift to go downstairs to go to the loo and kind of like cry in, in private. And a wonderful disability campaigner called Vicky Waddington, who is the partner of Alan Sutherland, who is a, is a fantastic disabled poet. Uh, and she was fantastic. She got me in this lift. She was in a power scooter and she parked it in the door and she stopped and she went you don't know why we're upset with you do you and i was like no i don't and so she went we went up and down in this lift well instead of shouting at me or gobbing at me she explained to me disability politics because don't forget as i said i'd grown up being told you're not like them you're different you're super disabled people that you know oh you can overcome anything inspirational super cripple rubbish and she stripped me down and put me back together I went in a medical model disabled person. I am broken. I'm trying to uh, overcome being disabled because it's all about being me being not as good as I could be. Mm. And she taught me the social model and she taught me and she went up and down this lift. I'll never forget. And it kept stopping and doors would open and she'd go, wait. And then the doors would close. And we just we went up and down about 10, 15 minutes. And I went in that lift one person and I came out another and I, it's very much like when you meet people that have suddenly discovered God <laughs> and they're a bit scary. I kind of discovered the social model and I have become a bit of an evangelical thing about it ever since. It, it's why I ended up very proudly working on this disability programs unit. They all hated me when I first started there because I was this traitor, but they soon learned that I was, you know, passionate about what they were doing and I really supported it. And because I am a very good presenter, it meant that because they were having a bit of a hard time getting viewers and I'm very engaging. So it bumped it up and we got other really good talent in. But it changed my life because it, it also allowed me to not feel guilty. Because one of the things that all this was about was trying to be great for my mum, for my stepdad, for my brother. All the things that I remember feeling bad about because it happened to them because they had a disabled son. And, you know, you go out with your mates and you know, I remember like going to clubs and being sorry, none of you can come in because of him. And it all, I always felt like it was my fault. And then suddenly I left this lift and went, it's not my fault. It's all your bloody fault. And yeah. honest to God, that flip changed my life. Because well, it was how I felt, but it's not how I was made to feel. 
and suddenly realizing that there was this new way of seeing the world that said you're not disabled by your body you're disabled by the way the world treats you because of your body and being different is great and you can you can't change yourself but you can change the world you don't have mm. to overcompensate all the while you can say i can't do that you can say i don't want to because i might get hurt and all that kind of stuff i mean you know <laughs> i was jumping off things and over things and under things i still carried on doing that but not so much and that then led to when i sort of left the media going into this new equality world and i studied and i retrained and i i learned to work in the field of access consultancy like accessible building design and then went into making policy so that governments and businesses were more accessible and it all stems from that moment and it's why i'm probably not as popular in the media as i could be because i will not present a show that i think damages disabled people i've been offered various shows that when i started doing them i realized that they were bad and i just went no and walked off um because of that moment because i remember doing a show that i now know probably was damaging to my community to other people whatever mm. i did to make it good whatever i did i mean one of the things we had this section called spare a little thought where i sat on a black piece of fabric in a with a black backdrop so my wheelchair levitated in the middle of the screen that's how we did it back then we didn't have green screen and um and i just said things like imagine if you went to the pub and you had three pints and you found that there wasn't a toilet that's what it's like for me sometimes so next time you're out just spare a little thought for what it might be like if you were in a wheelchair something like that little things like that and that's yeah. kind of a fledgling thinking of the social model and I think that that, that, um, that was kind of what I was trying to do. But I, was, I didn't know what it was. I, think I couldn't voice it. I couldn't name it. And she, Vicky Warrington, changed my life. Uh, and I will always be thankful to her. And I think that everyone in another person that did that was someone who's recently died, sadly, called Margaret Hickish, who mm. I worked with on the Paralympics. And she was this wonderful Scottish powerhouse of accessibility. And she kind of went into a room and if people didn't like what she didn't like what they were doing, she'd tell them. And seeing her do that meant I thought, right, this, I can do this. I, you know, I'm this, I can be this forceful. And she knew how to get a room of very high senior executives to just go, yes, Margaret, no, Margaret, that's what we do, Margaret. Um, and she, when my TV career died and it was like, oh, what am I going to do? And I was doing access consultancy and that's great, but it's a bit, you kind of get hired to make buildings accessible, but they kind of chip away at what you say until sometimes there's nothing left. Mm. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do. I'm feeling weird. And she went, right, you're talky, you're gobby, as you now know, poor thing. And um, <laughs> you know what you're talking about. Would you like to come and train our staff? So I went to work with her at Network Rail and started training station staff. And that has blossomed into a huge career working all over the world, training people and helping people to be more accessible and she was another one that showed me a way so so vicky said this is the social model and margaret said you can be really really firm because what you're saying is right and i think it's something disabled people really need to learn we regularly um kind of go oh no i'm you know i'd really like this but i kind of get it if you no don't don't be apologetic right you have a legal right to access you have a moral right to access but more than that you have a business right right like reason for access right you have money you should spend it we shouldn't be expected to go to work and not be expected to be able to go out afterwards and i think that 
or if you can't go to work, you still want to go out. You know, it, it's not, it's, it's time, but, and that's what I do now. I basically go into rooms full of people in suits and go, do it, or there'll be trouble. Uh, that's, that's kind of very liberating, I must admit. Yeah. I was going to ask that how, how that, what you do now comes about. Is that, I mean, that through, was it Network Rare was the first thing that was part of, I, of that journey? I did a few bits of, little bits of training. But what I did was I did a lot of um, training through schemes through like Grey Eye, um, uh, a group called Inclusion London run a training course for disabled people to learn about planning law and inclusive design. And I did that. Um, and that gave me the skill sets to work in that industry. And kind of, I started off, I'd go to meetings and go to events and people would go, look at the state of you. No one's going to take any notice of you. And the other thing they'd say was, well, we can't really have a disabled person telling us what to do because you're going to focus on your own impairment. You're not going to think about people that are visually impaired or hearing impaired. You're going to think about wheelchairs. So we need to do it for you. And I'd be like, so you with no impairment, i.e. non-disabled expert type, know more than I do. I don't think so. But I kind of, so it was a push and it was meeting Margaret and seeing her just wheel into a room and go, don't you dare, don't you dare <laughs> say that you know more than me. You have never experienced what I experienced and I have a share. And that was just, I was like, yeah, this is it. I'm, that's for me. And so that's how I do it now. And I'm kind of, you know, I go in and I'm creative and I'm, I'm uh, positive and I say how we can solve things. I don't just go in and go, you're all wangers for doing it wrong, <laughs> which is what I used to do. But I go in and say, hey, you, we can do it right. Let's get it better. Yeah, let's tell the world. It'll be great. But it's still based on the fact that I know better than you. And I think mm. that, and one of the other things that's really massive that we do that non-disabled experts don't is I say, I don't know what it's like to be visually impaired, so I'm going to get you a visually impaired expert. And so that's, so what used to happen was it'd be one non-disabled expert that would do it all and go, oh, I've, I've read the British standards, I know what people need. And what we do now is I go into a room and go, hello, I'm your expert, you're paying me to do this. And they'll go, right, well, we want to focus on that. And I'll say, well, don't, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to get in another expert who is visually impaired or hearing impaired or uh, from the autistic community or whatever to come in and they will guide you on this specific piece of work. And I will tell you how to do the overarching thing. So I'm the policy and then they, and then, so that way, not only am I getting a job, other people are getting a job. And I think that then they're getting it right. Because most of the reason why everyone gets stuff wrong is because some non-disabled person walks into a room and goes, well, I've got a friend that's got a wheelchair. I mean, why did the BBC cancel all of those disability programmes? Because the, the new um, channel exec had a disabled brother who didn't like our programme. So she cancelled it. And it's like, well, that's great. So you know one. I, I met one once, you know. Uh, he's, my, he's my brother. I, I know him a lot. Great. Still doesn't mean you know the community, you know. But that was, and that we get all the while. Oh, I, oh, you, I, I know, I know Jamie. So I know disability. And it's like, no, you know me, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and I, I know what it's like to be me. Uh, but you know, and I, but I was trained to be this to, to look at all areas of inclusion and to think. Well, a perfect example is things like tactile paving. Right. <clears throat> for wheelchair users, tactile paving can be uncomfortable. It hurts because you wheel over it and it hurts. Right. Yeah, yeah. But for someone that's visually impaired, it's life saving. <laughs> so so yeah. you, need, you need to know oh, there's, a, there's a road there. That's where cars will be. And this is where you cross. Right. So and it's like that we can we understand because we're trained and because we're skilled that there are going to be people that have needs that maybe over over our chars that sort of go well you need that but i need this more and that's what inclusion is about but we both share that experience of why it matters <clears throat> so it's not just a standard it's not just well i read it in a book 
it's a lived experience thing. And this is becoming more, I know the Tory party don't like it, but it's becoming really important in the world to say, well, it's all right knowing the facts, but what's it like? How does it feel? What does it feel like to be treated differently? And, you know, one of the things we, we do a lot in what I do is, is talk about other groups, other other excluded groups who might not be disabled, but are other that are othered by society and how that that's a shared experience. It, you know, being black is not like being disabled, being gay is not like being disabled, but being excluded is. It's yes. the same thing. You know, you might hit your thumb with a hammer or you might, you know, <laughs> drop a something heavy on it. It's a, it's a different reason why you've hurt your thumb, but it's still hurting your thumb. And that's, yeah. you know, and I think that at the end of the day, that's, that's it. That's all we can do is, is that. And, and in a way, I, I've got to say to everyone, I, I think that that is being listened to more at the moment in other fields of society than the media. And I think it's sad that, that this is why I wanted to work in the media, because I, I wanted to bring all the experience of working, you know, on, on things like rail and stuff like that to, to telly and stuff and radio and what have you. Because, you know, being so old, I remember when you weren't allowed on a train. <laughs> Sorry, I remember when visually impaired people weren't allowed in a station on their own. <laughs> it was illegal. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's come a long way. And yet in some, in other areas of our life, it's just cyclic. So it's kind of like, it's, it, it's like the sea, it comes in and comes out. And, you know, at the moment, the tide's in, it's all lovely. But the tide can easily go out again, and that's what we've got to stop. Whereas lots of other parts of life, I think it is a gradual march forward. And that's because of people like Margaret Hickish um, and people like Lorraine Martins and Caroline Eglinton at Network Rail that kind of just go, no, we're not letting this slip. No, no, that's it. We've got this far, that's it. Then we're going to move again forward, and then we're going to move again forward. And that is what we need to bring to telly and radio and books and films and everything. So, but unfortunately, I didn't get the job, so I won't do it. But hopefully, the person that did will, or I'll be writing a very angry tweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's that's what social media is for, and then just uh... yeah, that's it. It's, it's basically for calling each other names, telling each other they're wrong, um, uh, <laughs> and then for going dear, dear. It's basically like uh, there used to be a thing called dear sir or madam. I'm very unhappy about something or other signed uh, disgruntled from Cheadle or something and that's what basically what used to happen on things like Monty Python in the 70s and basically what it is is now Twitter has just become that but it, it, the thing is it's also I don't care what says, our community is really supportive it's been a place where I have found so many well persons like your good self I've found so many uh, allies and friends and people that I now use on a regular basis for my job you know mm. I, I have built up a huge collection of experts that I met online on social media who now if I need to know an answer for something I go straight to but also that I now go right you want to know about that here is your person and that all came from social media because before that we had to know you whereas now you can be on the other side of the world even and I can get uh, an international input on an answer. And again, that's helping solutions come up because you get this thing where we think we're doing it right, <laughs> very much like COVID. And then all of a sudden you discover that someone else is doing it better. And you go, oh, that's good, isn't it? Mm. The funniest thing is when you talk about the media and acting, for example, when we were getting it wrong, America was getting it so right. There are so many shows in the late 90s all the way through to the 
uh, end of the noise with disabled people in that you didn't even know were disabled. CSI, the, the, the pathologist, double MPT. Does he mention it? No, never. But he's doing his stuff. You know, um, uh, ER had a disabled person in it. Didn't mention it. Every you see it with a stick, didn't mention it. So, I mean, this was, it, this is, and we're kind of there now. <laughs> and it's like, and they're going, oh, we should be doing better. So they're now trying to up their game because they let it slip. But it's, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about now. I've completely <laughs> that case. Talk so much, my brain stops working. <laughs> so just to, to touch on the now, and obviously connected to what we're saying about social media, do you think that's been emphasised even more so that obviously really the only way of communicating properly with people now, whether it's, down the road or on the other side of the world is through social media and that's paid a ma- that's been pushed almost to the front of everyone's lives yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, I think I think this this period has been very strange for our community. I think that so many times I would go into a meeting about employing more disabled people and I would say, look, you've got to start setting up situations where people can work from home because to expect someone to come in every day, yes, some people can do it, great, but it shouldn't be a bar, a barrier to employing disabled people. If you can't work in an office nine to five every day, you can't work for us. And they were like, oh, we can't be done. No. And now, huge, and my clients, huge numbers of them are shutting huge departments and going, everyone's going online, which means now that there's huge job opportunities for our community. And I think that, is encapsulates what's happened at this time. We have we were a community, I think, that were ready to cope with this better than non-disabled people. We already were used to having periods where we weren't allowed to do things, having restrictions on our lives. We already had systems in place to talk to each other. You know, what do I do about this? I know, I'll ask Disability Twitter. Right? Bang! Mm-hmm. Hashtag Disability Twitter. I've got a question. Axe chat. All of this stuff. We were already doing it. So we were set up, and I think that we... Um, what's sad is, is lots of the stuff I had and many others had put in place have been taken away in the name of social distancing. So, you know, things like the railway industry, I'm, you know, we're all fighting to try and make sure that staff still provide service and assistance to people while social distancing. You know, I was in a meeting this morning and, you know, they were saying it is probably going to be some form of social distancing for the rest of this year. So, once we're let out, we're still going to be, oh, I can't touch you. You've got to be two metres away and all this kind of stuff. How do we get that if you need to be guided through a station if you're visually impaired? And it's mm. getting that across. So, again, we're, stand, we're sitting in a room going, no, no, no. And, again, that's where social media comes in. Because uh, it was only the other day, I think, that one of the rail companies said, hey, if you've got a bike, why don't you use the wheelchair space? We think that's a great idea for you to make sure you can take your bike. And then Twitter went, you can't yeah. do that. That's ours. And the ORR saw it, jumped in and went, no, don't, that's illegal. All the companies have gone, um, sorry, didn't mean it. That was the, that was the power of our community. And I think that as we go forward after this, I think we need to remember that. And I think we need to make sure that we tell, if no one's going to tell our stories, then people like you and people on, you know, on doing podcasts and doing these Skypes and Zooms and all this stuff is going to, this is going to proliferate. We, you are going to become, and I'm going to start my own too, uh, going to start being the, the, the gap 
that is left from that disability program is going to be filled massively. But we can use that not just to go, hey, I'm going to talk to Mick Scarlett for nearly two hours, poor, you poor listeners, but actually that we can use this to, um, to make real change and use it as that platform to, to tell your story, tell, tell, explain your life experience, but also explain what you need to make it better, what has been done that you think is wrong. And, and if we all do that, and there's just this massive amount of evidence that's just out there, you know, then they can't deny it. They can't go, well, I didn't know that. Because mm. you say, well, of course you did. It's every bloody where. You know, write your blogs. Do your, do your social media. Do inst- Instagram. It's brilliant. All these people doing uh, TikTok. I mean, I'm far too old for TikTok. That's it. I'm not, uh, I, don't, I, don't do it I can't do another social media. I'm sorry. It go, Twitter is my thing. I'm going to stick there. Instagram, I just stick pictures on and that's it. I don't, they have no point. Sam Rink is brilliant at all of her uh, social media, but there are some great people doing TikTok. TikTok's yeah. fantastic. Loads of people are really making a difference to a younger generation. They go, oh, I didn't know that. Right? Mm. But again, they're telling, they're going, hey, this is what it's like to be blind. This is what it's like to be paralyzed. This is what it's like to be this. Great, whatever. What we want to do now is also say, hey, this is what it's like to be not allowed to do something. To show it. You know, um, I'm working on a community journalism co- project here in Camden, to where I live, to try and explain to the council why some things are good and why some things are bad. And the whole point of it is not just to go, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, but to go, this is rubbish, and this is how you make it better. Yeah. And I think if we, this is what we can do. This is our next step, that we take this brilliant thing that we were, we led. All of the technological advances around, uh, you know, interactivity and all that, well, originated for disabled people even back as far as the remote control why was that created for someone that couldn't get up to turn the telly over a disabled person right that's it we've always been leading we've always taken up the the, you know chat rooms we've always built communities online because that's our way of if we can't get in we can do it online and now it's the time to to take that and and be really proactive with it you know, I don't know if we'll ever be chaining ourselves to buses again and throwing paint around, but it's almost like taking that from that community, that 90s real active political group and moving it into this new millennium and saying, right, we've got this ability to talk to each other globally. Let's do it. Let's shout and let's make it so that, I mean, imagine, you know, something goes wrong, you get your hashtag and you just bomb it. You know, you <laughs> Do uh, yeah, a pile on. Oh no, poor Sia, she's been piled on. At least she's apologised and now she's deleted her bloody account and going, oh, I don't want any they're horrible, they've been horrible to me. But I tell you what, she won't do it again, will she? So, do you know what I mean? And I think that is a perfect example of what we, we have the power now, folks. Um, and the other thing to remember, and this is a bit rotten, and I did an interview in Amer- with an American radio show, and I was accused of being far too schadenfreude. And I went, well, I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, you're right. Is After this, there's going to be a lot more disabled people that come out of this period with long COVID. Everyone has experienced being locked in. Everyone has experienced, if we can use that to explain to them the social model, you've now experienced the social model in its entirety. You were stopped doing something by something out of your control that was nothing to do with you. Right? That's what the social model says. Doesn't matter if you can't see, you can't walk. That's not what disables you. Living in a world that's not designed so you can do stuff. And that's what a virus did to you. So remember it, folks. When you're out there going, oh, it's all over. Hooray. I'm vaccinated. I can do what I like. We can't. 
And we mustn't let them forget that. They're not going to mm-hmm. go back to normal. We're not going to let them go back to normal. And if we get kids, oh, you're always moaning. Yep, that's right, because we've got something to moan about. And if you don't <laughs> like it, remember when you were moaning. Oh, I can't cope. I'm having a terrible time. I've been locked in for two months. I don't know what to do. And you're no. like, you get stuck. I was stuck at over three years once. I can get out of bed for a year and a half. You know, and you're like, you build a world whether your world is, is, is at the end of your arms. You know, there are people that live like that for their whole lives. Mm. So now that's it. So this is, I think, my call to arms for everyone listening is remember this and don't let them forget it. Remind them who you are. Go on and on and on. Be this horrible thorn in their paw until someone puts it out. And we can go, oh, we can pull it out for you too, you know. We can moan, but we can be constructive. We're lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I echo everything you say there. Just, yeah. So you've kind of already said it in that what you're saying then if you was to give a message to younger disabled people who want to get into tv or media what would that be i know you, it's, it's kind of you have kind of answered that question just then but i think the one the one address it to them directly yeah the one thing i think that i haven't said that i think i would say now is and this is something i'm annoyed with myself because my wife has been uh, trying to get me to do this for about 10 years is you now have the ability to make media in a way that when i started you never did i had to be discovered to make telly that's gone you can make it yourself you have the technology to make everything on your mobile that you know to film that level of quality would have taken an eighty thousand pound camera to record the level of sound i'm using a hundred pound microphone that my wife got me for christmas from uh, amazon right and it's a it's a brilliant microphone and it it means you can do really good quality stuff from home so you are you you know i've got my ring light set up we're not on video but you know and i'm some old technophobe you you guys you know what you're doing so do it don't let don't wait to be discovered discover yourself make the stuff you want tell your story tell other people's story if you want to go you know skiing go skiing film it edit it make that item I had to be paid to go and do that. I had to be hired, sent to a ski resort and go skiing. You can do it and film it and then it's out there. And then that's a way of getting into the media. But the other way is just push. There's all these schemes. They're looking now. Take your chance. Don't, you know, I I was discovered. That's not as likely to happen, but they are looking. So when you look on the websites, look on the schemes, apply, but always keep making the stuff because now they like to see that you already do it. Most channels uh, say, oh, send us a video to prove you can do it. So have all this stuff available. And um, and don't take no is the answer. Um, I, I wanted to do music. That was the thing I always wanted to do. And I got told no, 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 no. And I kept going. And in the end, I... You know, I got pretty far for someone that did have a record deal, but I did film, film themes and uh, TV themes and adverts and jingles and stuff. I was a bit like Charlie Harper in Two and a Half, which is sorry to admit to. Uh, but anyway, and um, but you you can do it, and, and that's it. And being being disabled is not a barrier to it, and don't let anyone tell you it is. And the next time, if you get someone tell you that they're not having any effing cripples on your show, headbutt them, because I wish I had it done. <laughs> I think I would have to. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any of that reasonable reaction to that kind of comment. You, you, you know what? Do you know what I actually said to him? Thank you for being so candid. Because I had had so many people promise me the world and then disappear. Because... One of the things that happens a lot is people go, yeah, yeah, you'd be great, yeah. 
Uh, let, so yeah, brilliant. Okay, right. Um, uh, I will get back to you with a contract because they didn't want to say uh, I don't want any effing cripples on my show. So when he said it, I was yeah. like, well, that's the worst thing I've ever heard anyone say. But actually, it means I'm not sitting at home waiting for that call from someone that doesn't mean it. So, <laughs> so cheers <laughs> for being honest. I, ironically, he was sacked very shortly after for saying that kind of thing to someone else who told everybody. <laughs> uh, it wasn't about disability; it was about um, uh, uh, gender um, and uh, really hit the fan. So, um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah. So that's, that's you don't want to know anymore. I can't say anymore for libel reasons. But um, <laughs> I did a show recently, and someone said, "Whatever you do, don't swear and don't be libelous." And I think I've sworn, and I, but I have got away with not being libelous. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's all good. This is, that's, that's, this, this is the, the beauty of our podcast. Like, like you saying, it's it's your, it's my, it's their thing. And if you want to swear, you can swear. If you want to not swear, you don't have to. So it's, it's you and. As long as this, people that are listening know that. This was from actual radio transmit, so there was a lot of rules. I used to do a radio oh, yeah. show on uh, on a Sunday morning. Mick Scarlett, Sunday morning madness, uh, on a rock station. And the kids used to ring in, because I didn't know much about rock music. I was just a DJ who'd got a rock show. Uh, and they used to ring in and go, hello, Mick, could you play me this record, please? And I'd be like, yes, easy for you. It's for Johnny. Thank you very much. Okay, okay, next up, we've got a fantastic track by Johnny. Okay, here we go. And I'll play it up and here it goes. And then they go, you mother. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> and go, oh, I'm ever so sorry, everybody. Uh, I didn't realise I had some swearing on it. And all the kids would be like, <laughs> and they'd be back and go, got ya. <laughs> and it became, they all, oh, he's on, he's on, brilliant. And all over the country, there'd be all these kids going to see if they could get me to play a record with swear words in. And so I had to develop punishment records. And I had a, because, you know, it's a proper rock slash, you know, kind of, ah, ah, ah. and yeah. I had a CD of, of tracks that were played if they got me. So I'd go, oh, I'm ever so sorry. I didn't know that was, you know, the kids have got me again, but they must be punished. So, for the next track, I've got Perry Como and Magic Moments. <laughs> so then, it became even more of a competition. It was like, oh, what have I done? So, um, eventually, the uh, station manager sacked me because it was getting ridiculous. <laughs> that's, that's entertainment, though. It's finest, though, isn't it? That's it, you see, you know, <laughs> nothing like, hello, welcome to Rock Radio, and now Mick, who likes synth music. <laughs> I played Depeche Mode once, and the manager ran in and went, get this shit off. <laughs> I went, oh, it's got a guitar on it. And he went, just get it off. <laughs> okay, that's too far, I see. Anyway, there you go. That is exactly two hours. You edit that then. <laughs> no, this, this, this is, uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, I yeah, oh, this is good, perfect, perfect, uh, perfect time to wrap up things. So, yeah, thank you for agreeing to come on and, and taking time out your your already busy schedule by the sound of it to to talk to me. Um, thanks. thanks for having me on. It's been absolutely great. There's nothing I like more than talking about me. So. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, because you've now got to edit it, or just go on it. I'll put the yeah. whole thing out and then people will it. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. I think, John, I, I'm thinking of doing one of these. I, I, my wife is going, you know you need to keep it short and edit it. And I was like, oh, I can't well, do that. I'm just going to talk until I run out of, I'm going to talk until I run out of breath and then go, that'll do you, next week. <laughs> until you're blue. That's, what you need to That's do. it, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so thank you to come on and thank you to everyone that has listened and I hope you've enjoyed it just as much as I have done uh, talking to Mick. And one more thing, actually, if people want to 
find yourself, whether it's on social media or wherever else, where can they go? Uh, my, my name is spelt the way that all 80s pop stars did. So it's M-I-K, no C. So Mick, like Rick and Nick. Uh, I know. Um, and then Scarlet, spelt like the colour, uh, not double T, so S-C-A-R-L-E-T. And basically almost everything is either MickScarlet.com or at MickScarlet in some way or other. Um, so um, Instagram, I'm at MickScarlet. Fa- Twitter, I'm at MickScarlet. Facebook, I'm Mick Scarlet, and my website is mickscarlet.com. Um, so <laughs> make it easy. That's it. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought buy it all because I actually <laughs> bought a load of domain names and then uh, forgot to renew them one day, and then got someone contact me again. Would you like to buy it off me for five hundred pounds? No. So <laughs> so for a whole year I couldn't be me. So from then on I learned to make make no mistake. I, I got everything. Um, under my name, probably, although I don't own things like TV, um, because the idea of Mixed Scarlet TV is something I've always wanted to do. 24 hours a day, Mixed Scarlet all the time. <laughs> but uh, it was a joke from uh, Eddie Van Halen. No, it wasn't. What was his name? David Lee Roth uh, from the 80s, the rock star. Dude, Eddie, uh, uh, David, Dave TV, 24 hours a day, Dave. And everyone always went, that's you, Dave. <laughs> And as you can tell, because I've talked about myself for two hours and one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds. So you've got less than 15 seconds to end it before you go over two hours. <laughs> but yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> you've put me on the spot now. Wow. Hope everyone enjoyed uh, listening. I've enjoyed it plenty. Um, and yeah, we'll catch you very soon. <laughs>